Um, so patients will come to me and very often they will have followed some really bad advice before they come to me. It's kind of weaponized mm. into product yep. placement and Absolutely. selling and influencers being like, right, well, this vitamin will save your life. And anyone that you notice creates that anxiety in you or that feeling that you're, you, you know, that feeling of comparison. Just mute, unfollow, yeah. don't engage with it. And that is so damaging. Mm. Um, what can we do about that? Welcome to Digital Health Diagnosed, your dose of tech wellbeing, hosted by me, Dr. Rachel Kent, lecturer in digital economy and society at King's College London and founder of Dr. Digital Health. Today, we are talking about influencers and diet culture. So when we follow influencer guidance online and how that might affect what we eat, what we think we should be eating, or maybe what we think is healthy. Today, uh, I'm joined by Sophie Medlin, who is a leading expert and consultant dietitian. Uh, founder of City Dietitians, chair of the British Dietitian Association. I always struggle to say that. That's a mouthful. Head of nutritional research at Heights. And your work features so extensively in press and media. You're a leading voice and activist in this space. And also was the key dietitian on a award-nominated series, Know Your Shit, on Channel 4 that was on TV earlier this year. So thank you so much, Sophie, for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, Of course, you are an expert in influencer culture and how it influences our diet, our food. And I just want to start the conversation by getting your take on what the key shifts are of how social media has impacted how we eat and our diet in the last decade. Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated area, isn't it? And it's uh, unfortunate that we have to have these conversations, I think, because obviously social media is a really unregulated space. And we know from the research that many and most young people are using social media like a public health forum. And there are plenty of people out there who are really happy to take up that space and share their opinions and their their views on dieting, on on fitness, on on all sorts of different things, including mental health, um, which has a huge impact on young vulnerable people and also older people who yeah. are also vulnerable at times. So what we've seen is this huge shift in in what people perceive to be healthy and a huge amount of confusion about what is healthy and what isn't healthy and what people should and shouldn't be doing. And the the perception is that nobody can agree, so I might as well do whatever I want to do, or nobody can agree, so I'm just going to do exactly what this person tells me to do, who may or may not have any qualifications at all to be sharing the information that they are. We've seen some really early sort of rises in social media be very influential in that space. And of course, early doors, there weren't any healthcare professionals there managing that space. There's certainly no regulation of that space. And, you know, we've seen huge cultural shifts in the way that we eat. Plant milk is a really great example. Nobody from a healthcare professional perspective has ever told people not to drink dairy unless they're intolerant. But influencers came in and of course now plant-based milks are are really the norm. Yeah, you told me this before that, um, yeah, the shift, the direct kind of correlation or relationship between certain foods and yeah, plant-based milk and how that actually gets taken up in society on like a very public health or public diet perspective. Can you just run through a couple of those examples? Because I think it's really interesting. Yeah. So plant milks is a great example because they're so ubiquitous now, right? You can't go to a coffee shop without being offered all sorts of different options. And, and, And it really was just influencers saying you shouldn't be drinking dairy and here's all the other options. And then of course we had big documentaries saying that you shouldn't be drinking cow's milk and all this kind of stuff. And people have just absorbed that. And that's a real high risk strategy for people, right? Because ultimately we have this really key stage in our life between the ages up until the age of 30, where our bones will get as dense as possible through our lifetime. And after 30, it's Mm. it's downhill from there. You've, You've only got a certain period of time to make your bones as strong as possible. 
And I guess on the social media front, the, the National Osteoporosis Association put out a, a press release saying that this plant milks were a ticking time bomb for teenage bone health. Oh, really? And okay. they were so overrun by... Uh, people saying sort of the, the vegan community particularly, but other people also saying that they were wrong and how bad this was, that they withdrew that press release. So the best scientific minds we have in bone health released a press release and they were so hounded and so trolled that they, they had to withdraw it. And that's scary. Okay, so many questions. Yeah. I don't know if we're going to get into like 45 <laughs> minutes, but let's give it a go. Um, so firstly, I guess there's so many problematic things at play there in terms of like the promotion of certain foods. Because you have a platform, that reaches a huge audience. Yeah. Therefore, that audience are taking up though, consuming those foods, whether they're beneficial or not is irrelevant, yeah. largely. Yeah. And then you have the best scientific minds in the UK or the world who has peer-reviewed science, evidence-based mm -hmm. research, so it's reputable, you can rely on it, it's legitimate, mm -hmm. gets trolled to the point where that information gets taken away. Yeah. And then you have the perpetuation of misinformation or certainly not nutritionally balanced kind yeah, of information. Absolutely. And not fully coming. informed information. Yes, yeah. Information that's informed by opinion, not science. Sure. Which is, you know, a high risk strategy for any public health platform as the social media ends up being these yeah. days. I guess one of the things that's relevant is that the way you look on social media, your appearance, your aesthetic often drives people's uh, perception of your reliability and your credibility. Yes. Which, you know, if you look at perhaps the, uh, I wouldn't like to cast aspersions, but perhaps if you look to the boardroom of the National, uh, National uh, Osteoporosis Association, as an example, and then you looked at the people online who They probably are don't look like influencers. Things, they probably don't look like influencers. <laughs> and, and, you know, of, of relevances, they probably can't communicate to mass audiences in the yeah. same way that influencers can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also how we determine what's reputable, yeah. what's legitimate information and the representation of self on social media often kind of obstructs the qualification that that individual yeah, might absolutely. have. And this is something we talk about a lot, isn't it? And we've yeah. done a bit of work together. And I think often that blue tick or having, you know, tens of thousands or millions of followers would then actually legitimate what they're saying yeah. would authorize what they're saying and it's that kind of weight of responsibility because not that long ago we would assume that our clinicians our gp the people that we see in the hospital yeah. nurses were the ones that were giving us the reputable information and we would trust that and yeah. there's a kind of there is a hierarchy that exists there but one for good reason because they do have the qualification yeah now the relatability of an influencer or maybe a gp that is an influencer is really really interesting yeah. and useful and accessible as yeah. well when yeah. you have to wait ages for a gp appointment there are loads of benefits but I think the inability to discern or identify what is a legitimate, what is a qualified person, yeah. are they, do they have the backing? Do they have yeah. the scientific expertise or have they got the education to share this information versus those that just present really well, yeah. that look really engaging, that speak really well, that maybe speak in a certain way or wear yeah. certain clothes or have a kind of presentation that authorises their opinion. Yeah. And absolutely. I think it's just such a tent it's such a tension because you don't want to not allow people the freedom to do that. Yeah. But at the same time we see a huge circulation of misinformation and also harmful uh harms on mental health like body image kind of concerns or pressures absolutely. or stresses. Um yeah. so yeah, maybe could you talk a little bit more about 
what you've seen in your clinic with your patients in particular um, with regards maybe towards kind of disordered eating practices or the relationship between social media and eating practices? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, it's a complicated area for lots of different reasons. And one of the things that I think is relevant here is even when a patient has engaged with me, so they've decided to come and see me, they think I'm credible, all the rest of it, they've booked in to see me. Often still at maybe a follow-up appointment, they'll say, well, I listened to this podcast and they said something different to what you said. And then Mm. we have to, and that might have been a podcast that's from someone who is credible in a different space, not nutrition. I mean, it's worth saying that medical doctors have very little nutrition education and they often jump on a bandwagon and they become, you know, the vegan doctor or the, I don't know, the no statin doctor, whatever it might be. And they end up going down this kind of really specific path about something when actually they're not necessarily educated in that area. And things the hair ones that I've seen floating around on Instagram yeah hair ones you can do all sorts of different random things now which of course have got no not of course sorry that's patronizing they have no clinical relevance whatsoever and there is even some much bigger health monitoring tests now which are you know are up for debate in terms of the the benefits of them and they really feed into health anxiety people turn up to me with these pages and pages of of tests that they've had done and they think it's going to help them and really it's given them more health anxiety made them more worried and and also often presents really conflicting information you should be eating this but actually don't eat this and and do this and do that and it's 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 hard for people even people with income people who are you know maybe at the top of their field who are doing amazing work Mm. still can't differentiate fact from fiction in this space yeah and people come and they will have you know cut all sorts of different things out of their diets because someone on instagram told them to try this or try that and it's a dangerous space and it really feeds into this disordered eating behaviors that people adopt. And, you know, the vast majority of my patients are people who have gut health problems, the nature of my clinical work. Um, But that means that often their gut health problems come alongside a huge amount of anxiety, worry, uncertainty about what they should or shouldn't be eating. And, you know, often people have this sort of decision paralysis. They open the fridge and they just don't know what to eat because they've been told so many different things. It's that saturation of content from, or information from the saturation of content and that kind of, yeah, inability to identify, you know, there's so much noise. Yeah. How do I kind of sift through that? Um, Can we just drill down to a couple of the examples you mentioned? So intolerance tests, I'm kind of fascinated by them because I've had good friends of mine have them and swear by them. And I I was nearly encouraged to the point of getting one. And then we had a conversation and I decided against it. Can you just share with those hair, you know, the hair ones, that's what I'm talking about here, a little bit about what they are, how they work and should we trust them? Sure. So all commercial intolerance tests are using a similar sort of of, of measure for what you're tolerant or intolerant to, right? And they measure a, a reaction in your body, an IgG reaction. And that IgG reaction occurs irrespective of what you eat. So you'll eat... If we sat here together and ate pistachios and then we ate some bread and then we ate some milk and then we did our intolerance test, it will come up to say that we're intolerant to those foods because there's a present reaction. It's not a negative reaction. It's just just how your body responds to those foods in your diet. So what happens is people do these tests and then they end up having a list of foods they're not allowed to eat, which is essentially all the foods they typically eat. Well, this is what, yeah, friends have been like, yeah, all the stuff I love. Yeah. All the and things like, they eat regularly. Yeah, yeah. old drink as well. Like yeah. a friend that was like, oh, it's white wine. Yeah. 
Like I'm, I can't yeah. drink white wine anymore. And she was very That's upset about that. normal biological <laughs> just... reaction to the food okay. that you're eating that they measure. And the Advertising Standards Authority has banned one of the leading uh, intolerance test companies from saying they're intolerance test. They can diagnose intolerance tests because legally they can't. There's no medical premise for what they're, they're suggesting they can, they can diagnose. But wow. on their website now, it just has this little asterisk after diagnose your food intolerances. And if you scroll right to the bottom of the website, it says we can't actually diagnose food intolerances. And so technically, they're still getting away with that, which is a scary thing. I did and, and not know that. I think, and I think one of the things to bear in mind with that is best case scenario, people ignore all that advice and just carry on doing what they're doing. Worst case scenario, people cut out everything nutritious from their diet and end up living on four or five foods that they believe to be safe. And, you know, inevitably, some people might feel a bit better because probably something in their diet was triggering yeah. whatever symptoms they may have But you've cut having. out so much stuff on mass. Unnecessarily. And you just kind of reverse engineer it, yeah. like we're going, oh, I'll yeah, just cut exactly. out all this stuff and then I'll figure yeah. it out rather than trying yeah. one thing at a time. So. And in clinic, of course, with, you know... Uh, a clinician such as myself or my colleagues who who know what they're doing, people will report their symptoms and will understand when it happens, what's going on, which foods they've eaten in the context of that, maybe what time they've eaten, what's happened. And we can really differentiate what is most likely to be this thing that you've eaten. And we can cut that list down to one or two things to try. Or we go on a sort of more formalized but evidence-based elimination type yeah. diet and then do the reintroducing piece. And that's it's that reintroducing piece that's really key to getting people back to normal balanced eating and having a healthy relationship with food. It's when you get this list of things you're never allowed to eat these again, mm. that people become incredibly anxious. And of course, then often lose weight unnecessarily and find themselves in a situation where they feel super anxious about everything they put yeah. in their mouth, which is a really dangerous game to be playing. Yeah, absolutely. That is fascinating about the intolerance mm -hmm. test. I didn't know that. Um, I want to pick up on one thing you said about we've, we've the worried well. Yeah. This yeah. idea of like kind of hyper vigilant self tracking, or I mean, in my world, that's how I kind of yeah. understand the concept of the worried well. Those that use so many different digital tools or ways of kind of monitoring their body, their health, their mm. diet, their fitness, their mm. lifestyle, all these things or you're kind of like very religiously following the guidance of influencers or any information you get online you know you could be a very re reputable legitimate source but this saturation of information I guess yeah. and this the way in which it's kind of exacerbated those of us that are you know well yeah. touch wood like in theory I don't have a chronic condition or disease yeah. is what I mean when I say that um, but are highly anxious uh, and perhaps mental health is very affected because of this continual prioritization of like, I must be healthier, I yeah. must be fitter. Yeah. And it's that very neoliberal, I must do better kind of yeah. ideology that we see. Um, and I think it speaks very much to what I call in my work, the moralism of health. Mm. And I think, is that something that you've seen what, getting worse or better with social media, the ways in which influencers kind of share you know, this is good for us, this is bad for us, those kind of very moral discourse and dichotomies around different food groups. Yeah. And I'd be interested to know how that plays out with your patients. So I think, first of all, certainly for our generation, let's say we've grown up in, in an era where thinness is the mm. most, there's a panacea, Was right? desirable. Yeah, absolutely, and, yeah. more desirable than anything else. Yeah. Most important thing, irrespective of health uh, to that extent. Uh, so before social media, these things existed. So for example, some foods are classified in people's minds as good and some foods are classified as bad and the, it's an arbitrary classification of foods, yeah. right? They've just decided this is a thing. And, you know, at the moment, obviously sugar is the thing that everyone is demonizing yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, what have you. Is is a it's a it's a tricky space, and I think that the problem that we have is that people read these things or see these things online, see the person presenting it, and and think of it as gospel, and off yeah. they go following that advice 
largely to their detriment and that's super problematic the the worried well piece and i guess it's it's useful to define that and you have done but it's about sort of people who are otherwise well but yeah. who are who have some level of health anxiety and in my clinics i would identify some people who perhaps have a parent who maybe they've got a bit of irritable bowel syndrome and they had a parent who died of bowel cancer every time their tummy tells them something's yeah. not quite right they are going to think they're yeah. yeah anxious about it and they'll go to their gp or they'll go to their their healthcare provider and they'll be told you're fine there's nothing wrong with you all the tests are fine but they don't believe it they don't feel yeah. invested in that so then off they go and try and find more information more tests more it, more data well this isn't quite right what does that mean what yeah. does this mean now i found the this. minutia of the all minutia of that stuff of it. And, and and that's kind of a, a relatively extreme example right whereas we have this sort of low level society uh, examples you know with influence and i think it's it's potentially worse in the male space now as well, where men are yeah. saying, well, you have to wake up in the morning, you have to do this and this and this and this before 5am and then you have to do this and you have yeah. to do this. And, yeah, you don't average, sleep, basically, you just on the go. And you have to be perfect. And, and I think that that, you know, we used to, it used to be very much a female dominated thing, this yeah. kind of health anxiety and this, you know, worrying about your appearance and what you should and shouldn't be doing. And now it really has been taken up hugely mm. by men who feel you can never be muscly enough and you can never be strong enough yeah, and you yeah, have yeah. to have done all this amazing bossing it stuff before 9am. Yeah. And actually it's just dangerous to people because totally. the average person cannot do that. That then perpetuates anxiety. Well, I can't, I can't go to the yeah. sauna every day. I can't, yeah. I don't have an who's ice got, bar. Who's got time for that? Exactly. Who's got the money for that? And exactly. it's just the reality or the kind of disconnection between the reality of life versus the slight of this yeah. performative I call it like a health identity we're yeah. like performing yeah. this kind of very optimal like self-empowering I can transform myself by living this really idealized lifestyle and yeah. uh, eating plant-based foods and everything is kind of orchestrated in a way that's very focused on all these different aspects of our life that become representative of health yeah and I think that's where health has kind of uh, obviously this is something that I'm very interested in. I know you are too morphed into this real representation of being like a good or not good yeah. person like yeah. good or it's not quite sure. bad but it's either you're like proactive and healthy and fit and you get up at five and you do loads of exercise every day yeah. or if you don't you're lazy and you're yeah. unhealthy and therefore you deserve to be that way yeah. and I just want to pause on the historical context on that bear with me because I just find it so interesting this like moral element mm, of health mm. I think it's fascinating because in my research I kind of trace it back to the 17th century mm. and basically like sin so ill health was equated with sin so this is where it's come from yeah. I, I would argue yeah. so it's like when you're sinful and you behave badly mm. in the 17th century that was a very religious discourse yeah. so you're kind of god-fearing and you're behaving badly therefore you get ill yeah. so ill health is sinful that's where that connection started and that's the 17th century mm. now today we are still seeing those same ideologies perpetuated through, and even interestingly, it's not kind of public health messaging always, but I think influencer culture can now be arguably the worst culprit yeah. for, for, for kind of reinforcing those ideas that like, if you don't do all these things to be as healthy and fit as possible, then if you get ill, well, you kind of deserve it or you're lazy yeah. or you're, you know, you haven't done enough and that's because totally. you haven't spent enough time or effort in figuring out how to be as healthy and fit as possible or yeah. do your intolerance tests and blah, yeah. blah, blah. And I just think, I just find it fascinating how that is still kind of being circulated yeah. today and is kind of weaponized mm -hmm. into product yeah. placement and Absolutely. selling and influencers being like, right, well, this vitamin will save your life or yeah. this IV vitamin drip, that, yeah. those kind of awful things yeah. that um, were getting circulated at one point. Um, and I, yeah, and I think a real yeah. tangible example of that is how when people have acne or eczema, yes. for example, people will say, well, it's because you're eating sugar. It's because you're drinking this. It's because you're doing this. It's your fault because of this, this, and this. And of course, those things are 
you know some a, a small percentage of those things may be impacted by in by to by your lifestyle it's a minutiae in terms of the other genetic factors environmental factors all of the things that go into those kinds of things you can right. be the the invert in inverted commas cleanest living individual and still suffer with acne and still suffer yeah. with eczema it's nothing you've done wrong and in my chronic illness patients, there is this real driver that you should, you know, you're just not trying hard enough yeah. to be well. And that's toxic so to somebody toxic. who lives with a autoimmune condition, for example, mm. right? That's really poisonous to people's minds and their 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 faith in themselves and their, you know, how they how they disassociate from their bodies and hate their bodies yeah. because it's not working like it should do because they they believe they haven't done enough. And that yeah. And and on the back end of that is someone making money off them. Yeah. Selling them the ebooks, selling them products, selling them services that yeah. they're not qualified to to give. Yeah. But I think everybody's food habits or the ways in which we were kind of getting quite creative with our meals mm. and making banana bread and, you know, kind of it being a bit more exploratory was quite interesting during COVID. I wondered what trends or behaviours you saw from your patients mm. related to how social media was affecting our eating practices during COVID. I think that'd be really interesting to hear. Yeah, so I, I guess overall, I think COVID and, and the time out from being able to go to the gym and do normal routine stuff. I think on the one hand, I see patients who uh, adopted much healthier lifestyles and were like, well, I had loads of time. So I did this and I did this. And they really enjoyed that time in terms of how they were able to take care of themselves. And then there's a, another cohort who just really struggled in terms of keeping any sort of routine and maybe gained some weight, maybe felt terrible about themselves, mental health declined, all of these kinds of things. And there's there was a real split there, I think. And a okay. lot of the, the, the things that people were doing were very performative, right? And we all remember it. We all remember mm. the people who were doing their home workouts and doing Joe Wicks and doing all these things. Yeah. And then there were lots of people at home thinking oh I'm not doing that and I'm bad and I'm yeah. not doing the I can't be bothered to do anything yeah. and no. I don't feel like I'm doing COVID right whatever that yeah, yeah, like. yeah the toxic productivity totally. I called it in lockdown yeah, yeah. Yeah. and also of course what we saw was a huge increase in young people using social media and that directly in my opinion and the research suggests directly led to a massive increase in eating disorders in young people right. and okay. Facebook's known since 2019 yes. so Meta has known since 2019 that Instagram has a huge negative impact on the body image of young people, particularly young women, but also young men. Because they published, they knew. About they knew, it, yeah. They? Well, they didn't publish. It was a leak, wasn't it? it was yeah, a, sorry, it was yeah, a yeah, yeah. But it was made very yeah, was, publicly you know, available within like, the company. It was. They, they said that we know that we make body image worse, and negative yeah. body image is very closely related to eating disorders. And the more time you spend on social media, particularly when you're young and vulnerable the more likely you are to think that actually, oh, my body doesn't look good enough. My body doesn't look like her body mm. or their body. And why doesn't my body look like that? And it's it's a, it's a real slippery slope, especially when we know that there are a huge number of influencers who are fitness influencers or whatever it might be, who have eating disorders themselves, right, who yeah. have either come from an anorexic background or are now doing fitness, which is equally as restrictive and equally as kind of precise in terms of macro counting and all that kind of stuff it's the same behaviors it's just a different mm. body shape that they're adopting and 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 we know this harm is being caused and the powers that be know this harm is being caused and yet unfortunately it seems to be pretty low on the government's agenda in terms of doing anything about it, it it's so powerful isn't it because it has such a direct impact on how people are living their lives mm -hmm. it just reminded me when i was doing my phd one of my participants was sharing her food and her running mm. quite diligently on instagram mm. And she later found out that her best friend's boyfriend was using her as a training guide for wow. his marathon wow. training. Okay. And and food as well. Yeah. And uh, anyway, she started tapering her runs, like, yeah. like cutting them back in, in preparation for the actual marathon. Mm. 
And apparently he'd like got completely freaked and be like, oh, well, she's eating this now and she's cut back her runs and I'm not doing that. And that's not enough for me, but I feel like I should be doing that. Literally using her as like a training guide, I guess. Um, Almost like if you had a PT, but she didn't know that he was following her like that. And so she found out through her friend and then she, he said to her like, you know, what's going on there? And she's like, oh, I'm just following another training plan. Like don't use me. And she wasn't even like an influencer on that scale, but using them as kind of a role model and as effectively a training plan. I guess it's just the unknownness of who's following you and the kind of imagined community aspect, but the fact for surveillance to kind of go out into these wider circles, whether that's helpful or not for the individual that has decided to start following that Mm. person. And I guess it's problematic in terms of not all bodies function the same way. We all need different types of exercise, different types of food, nutrition. And yet when we access the health guidance or information or fitness guidance and information on social media, it's this kind of one size fits all approach, which is so problematic. Um, What's your advice for anybody who is following influences because we know it's I mean we've yeah. discussed this we're going to try and write a paper on it yeah. aren't we about yeah. how social media is a informal or unregulated public health platform yeah. now and I think particularly during COVID where in the early phases we didn't know mm. what the pandemic was how it was transmitted so and um, you know the government didn't know and the NHS mm. didn't know so we were going to social media for that information which I think exacerbated our reliance on social media influencers for health stuff mm-hmm. um, yeah what kind of trends have you seen in that and, and what can you recommend yeah. for your patients if they're kind of following influence for health and food guidance just I mean, to be aware of don't don't okay. do it first <laughs> of all but really importantly I think one of the things that we've seen which is super toxic is these what I eat in a day videos yes. so again just to reiterate your point Rach the your body's needs change every day and your body's needs are completely different to anybody else's needs right and and when we think oh well she's not eating this or she doesn't have carbohydrates with this meal or he's having this much protein with this meal and he's doing this many workouts a day or a week Mm. we're in a space where people are are so quick you know I've seen patients even middle-aged patients older patients saying well try to follow what this influencer eats in a day and I it blows my mind that that's that is something that even someone who is mature enough to yeah. you know have their own family maybe and all the other things still feels like that's a good thing to do and a good thing to follow so number one if you find yourself looking at people's what I eat in a day and thinking that that's something you should be eating unfollow that person that person is not helpful yeah. for you if you notice yourself um looking at pictures of people and zooming in on them and comparing your body to their body and thinking well I think her waist is a bit smaller than mine or mm. I think he's more muscly than me in this particular area whatever it might be that that sort of body surveillance of your own and other people's bodies is super super unhealthy and I know that everyone knows it's academically but it's really important to remember that those images are probably edited right or they're from six months ago when they were in a particular phase of their training or they are they've had plastic surgery to get to where they are and if that's not you you're not going to achieve that body the thing that I say to people is they don't even look like that yeah so you can't look like that because they don't even look like that and I think that we as a society, sometimes we forget that. And it's very easy to forget Absolutely. that when you're bombarded with these images of what you feel you should be looking yeah. like. You know, genetically speaking, some people just won the genetic lottery and that is yeah. naturally what they look like. But those people are few and far between. And the poses that people get themselves into. The positions even, even and like the lighting, it, but yeah. the angles. Yeah, like, all wow, of those how things. did you, yeah, 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 yeah. But if you contorted your body into that position, maybe <laughs> yeah, you yeah, yeah. Like it's them, actually you like do contortion. That. You can't look at yourself. Yeah, so it's, it's <laughs> yeah. really, we need to stop 
following these people that cause that problem. And, yeah. and to your point about it not necessarily being a big influencer, yeah. it could be your friend or your neighbor, or it could be someone you went to university with or went to school with. It could be anybody that you are looking to for this advice or this this panacea of what you think your body should look like and anyone that you notice creates that anxiety in you or that feeling that you're you, you know that feeling of comparison just mute unfollow yeah. don't engage with it and it's my opinion and you know I've shared it widely before that people who are in a position of of health authority so myself for example I would never share pictures of my body in a way that sort of you know, in workout clothes or whatever yeah. else, because I just think it's really unhealthy for people. And, and the, the fact is, I know it's unhealthy for people because I see people drawing people, particularly in the body positivity space, for example, people who who fit a, a standard, a particular standard of beauty or kind of our general standard of beauty. Yeah. They are saying, come to me for body positivity advice and I can talk to you about it. But then when you get to their page, you're bombarded with pictures of them in a bikini yeah. or in their workout kit and they're doing amazing. their workout and they look incredible yeah, and they yeah, fit yeah. that standard of beauty. And so actually what they're doing is drawing people to them for support with eating disorders or body Im image issues and then making them worse. Yeah. And that's super yeah. problematic and we see it all the time. There's two things I want to pick up on on that. And the first one I'll just say briefly, which is what I found really interesting with with the body positivity movement, but also just influencer culture more kind of broadly is the kind of compulsion towards representing our own bodies mm -hmm, on mm -hmm. social media, like influencers. Mm -hmm. I call it like the influencer logic in, mm -hmm. in the book in terms of like we've started to perform and showcase our lives like like big influencers who mm. are making money and mm. getting, you know, selling products and mm. services, mm. whatever, on Instagram or TikTok or YouTube. Um, and, you know, the ways in which certain body shapes become desirable very quickly, I find that fascinating. But what I find, I guess, also even maybe more interesting is how the everyday person who isn't a big influencer, we have these same visual aesthetics. Yeah. Um, and just quickly on going back to the kind of representation of self, when I was doing my PhD, a lot of my participants would only eat food that was aesthetically pleasing for Instagram because they wanted to have something that was pretty. So it was lots of different colours and ingredients yeah. and um, would be kind of, you know, on nice crockery and, you know, nice kind of picture taken in a really lovely way. Um, and yeah, over time, that really directly impacted what they were actually consuming, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I had one example of a, a PT who was, and you know, not a big, big influencer, but she, someone came up to her in the gym who followed her on Instagram and was like, I really like it when you put peas in your food, <laughs> like peas. And she was like, okay, uh, cool. She was like, I love your content. I love your peas. And she was like, okay, cool. <laughs> anyway, so thereafter, she started putting peas in all of her yeah. food because this person had, in her gym, come up to her yeah. and said, I love the peas in your food. I love peas. So she started eating loads of peas. Um, of all the foods. Yeah. Anyway, I just found it fascinating and kind of like wonderful, but wild. So weird, yeah. <laughs> like, then yeah. you're eating all this food because one person or maybe loads of people online are kind of giving yeah. you that feedback. Yeah. And then you're tailoring your consumption to the aesthetics of Instagram yeah. and it's just and fascinating. And we see the flip side of that. So what we've seen over recent years also is alongside the body positivity movement is is a, the movement towards food freedom, right? So mm. trying to uh, empower people to eat whatever they want to eat. And there's, I mean, it's so ubiquitous now that it's in films and things, but what we see is influencers pretending to eat a donut <laughs> 
They don't eat it, they throw it away because they need to maintain this aesthetic, right? Mm -hmm. So they might sit there with a bowl of pasta and put it to their mouth, but they're not going to eat it. They're going to push it away afterwards. Oh, I've had once, yeah, another participant who would take the pictures of somebody else's cheat meal. So, you know, kind of moralizing the bad food of like a burger or pasta. Exactly, yeah. um, And then putting it on their Instagram so that it looked more balanced. It wasn't just salads. It wasn't just vegetables. But in reality, they're eating next to nothing. Yeah. And when they do share what I eat in a day, it, it's next to nothing yeah. and that's probably the reality of every single day because they have an eating disorder or at least disordered eating yeah. but they are performing this food freedom this idea that oh you can eat if you eat like me I also eat these things you don't we know you don't we know you're not eating those foods yeah it's so problematic because it's like I call it like life slices yeah. like it's little pockets of our daily lives and it can never be representative and yet when we perform our health identity online well I mean I think identity and health identity are so intertwined Mm -hmm. like I think it's very hard to distinguish because health has become so moral and so representative of lifestyle and being proactive and productive Mm -hmm. and you know the toxic productivity that we saw in lockdown where you've got to make banana bread and renovate your house and learn a new language and (laughs) do your job all at the same time (laughs) and look after your kids or whatever um then it becomes so entwined with who we are as individuals that if you feel a pressure to post Mm -hmm. as well, I think this is a thing, no matter kind of level of influencer, that can become a very toxic cycle. And we were talking in the last episode um, with Sula, uh, the health psychologist, about tech addiction. And I think for influencers, I'd be fascinated to learn more about their addictive or compulsive behaviours with not only kind of food or certain managing kind of their diet and tracking potentially their diet and like my fitness pal and those types of things food prep but also the way in which they feel compulsively uh pressured to kind of share it as well and i wonder if you've got any insights yeah i think that that the the data the information that we we have would suggest that when you post something and it gets a good response you get this dopamine hit you feel good and you want to keep posting things that that perform well and we've got um some mutual friends who are really trying to grow their platforms but are not quite getting the message right right so that they're posting and posting and posting but they're not getting the feedback they want from it yeah and uh, you know for some people they would go i don't have time for this and it's not working so i'm going to stop but for other people they're going to go i'm going to keep trying and i'm going to keep pushing and i'm going to try a different angle and a different angle and i'm going to warp myself into what I think people want and then once I get there I'm gonna have to maintain that that identity of what I have understood people want from me and you can see that I mean we know and we know both anecdotally and and from the research that living inauthentically yeah really negative for your mental health your self-esteem one of the things I noted for myself was when I left my academic position at King's I then felt that I could be more authentic on social media and uh, that, that's interestingly, interesting. just grew my, my following much more quickly yeah. than the, the sort of space I was trying to navigate previously, which was like trying to please other people. Yeah, or um, I guess you've got that academic identity exactly, and then you've got your yeah. personal identity and then you've got your professional yeah. kind of and sometimes consultant. I, you know, and I sometimes say you're all three and yeah, sometimes exactly. you're bits and bobs of, yeah. you know. And, you know, I'm quite political and I yeah. like to share things that are part of my life that aren't necessarily um you know part of my work and things like that you know I'm pretty careful about what I do share but ultimately I think it's relevant and important to say that you can end up in a space where you are you've molded yourself into this particular person deviating from that is incredibly difficult and one of the really poignant points around that is if you've styled yourself as the vegan dietitian or you've styled yeah. yourself as um I keep going on about vegans and it's not very fair because there's so many different examples like the low not carb dietitian or yeah not at all <laughs> um it could be the low carb thing it could be the I don't know there's so many different things that people identify as as part of their 
following and then maybe they also write a book about that topic and they do this and then as a healthcare professional what we are trained to do and what we have to do is is mold and pivot to the research yeah so if you have, have styled yourself as a person whose whose dogma is this particular thing irrespective of what new research comes out to counter your point or to say actually these are other things we have to consider around this. You're going to ignore them because your followers are not going to like that. Well, you're going to lose followers. Also, it's the then... nuance of peer-reviewed research. Yeah. I mean, even peer-reviewed research, like you can't, it's not a sexy <laughs> sounding <laughs> thing, is it? It's like, yeah. but that's the evidence. Yeah. To try and translate that, the kind of nuances of yeah. that into a digestible Instagram post yeah. or TikTok reel or whatever, video, um, YouTube short, mm -hmm. you know, that's really challenging. You do it brilliantly Thank on your you. platform, but it's really challenging. Yeah. And most kind of influencers or many people would struggle to get the science, get the data and make it into something that was actually interesting. I, I, it hadn't occurred to me that that's really hard, but it's something that hopefully, you know, some, something I enjoy doing and I find relatively easy. But often what I have to say is for some of the people, some of the time, this is the right thing to do. And certainly yes. when doing TV work, you know, you have to be careful about those messages you put out because it's not the right advice for everybody no. all of the time. And, you know, there are consequences to somebody going, oh, well, you know, I, I've got a problem with my bowel and I've been told by my doctors that I can't ever eat these foods. But Sophie on TV said, eat loads of fiber mm. and, now I'm, and now I've got a perforated bowel. Like doing the work I do and understanding things medically, you know the consequences of your actions. So you have to tread that line carefully yeah. and it's important. It's when influence, influencers become very prescriptive yeah. and kind of diagnose yeah. all those health or the potential for health problems yeah. or in a way that, yeah, I guess they capitalise on or there can be a lot of manipulation behind it because it's selling a product or a service yeah. that, mm. yeah, this can help you, but actually they're just vested because they're getting paid yeah. by that company. Totally. And then the user or the viewer being really unaware of that. And that is so damaging. Mm. Um, what can we do about that? And I know that you're an activist in this space yeah. and you've kind of petitioned for some more regulation on social media, but do you have any specific advice for listeners who struggle just to kind of decipher the noise online of like what to eat or not to eat or and, and yeah do you have any kind of guidance on yeah, that I mean I think one of the most important things to say is that if you are feeling anxious about what you shouldn't shouldn't be eating if food is kind of in any way making you feel anxious or your food choice is making you feel anxious get some help mm. it doesn't have to be like that like that that's a, a the beginnings potentially of something like orthorexia, with it, which is a preoccupation with healthy eating. It's the beginnings of disordered eating, which may be a precursor to an eating disorder. There's so many reasons to get help if you're feeling anxious about it. And that help could come from a psychologist or it could come from a dietitian. But it's about trying to find the right help for you to, to, to calm the noise in your head about what you should and shouldn't be eating. Also, really importantly, stop consuming that information. Yeah, Get it out of your feed, get it out of your ears if it's podcast, whatever it might be. Stop consuming that information and stop trying to get it right because you need to listen to your body and the key to health is listening to your body yeah. and not taking cues from anywhere else as you talk about beautifully in your work and I think that's just the most important thing is to stop the noise mm -hmm. and, you know I've had patients with really bad health anxiety you spend hours up at night googling every single thing that you can possibly think of and the minute you stop doing that it's hard because it's addictive, right? Yeah. But you can then start to see the wood for the trees and think about what you think and what you feel and what's right for you. Um, so get help if you are feeling super anxious about it. But really important, that social media hygiene piece is just the key. Yeah. So stop the noise through social media, unfollow, block, whatever feels social right for you. Social media hygiene, I love that phrase. Yeah, I think it's yours, isn't it? I thought it was yours. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> we, got it. we worked on it together. We grew together with that one. Social media yeah. hygiene, key, unfollow, yeah. you know. And also I think, you know, I, I feel hopeful that regulations will come. Um, I don't think Do you feel hopeful? 
I do. I, I mean, when we see when we saw the COVID stuff and we saw what they yes, can actually true. do by flagging misinformation, actually we go, okay, well, this is possible. And yeah. now they do have on on Instagram and on generally on meta platforms the ability to to flag misinformation and flag it as an eating disorder risk. What they do with that information internally, I don't know because it's pretty. You know, I've reported loads of stuff and not seen anything positive yeah. back from it. But in the end, I think we've just got to do our best and hope that you know the powers that be are listening. And I think the government are taking somewhat of an interest in it and. Uh, yeah I mean it's got to change right it's got to yeah, get better absolutely so obviously I do a lot of work on health tracking mm-hmm. um, and the benefits of health tracking it can be really motivating so I'm yeah. talking about like Fitbit Strava Apple Watch mm-hmm. step counting in particular the 10,000 steps a day thing that everyone mm-hmm. works towards um, and actually there was some really well I actually started doing some research into step counting because I was like where has this number come yeah. from because it's everywhere it's pervasive yeah, yeah, yeah. and also it's completely intergenerational Yeah, like it doesn't matter you know where you're at demographic Graphically, everybody now is kind of aspiring. Almost all my patients will report to me how many steps a day they're doing. Oh, really? Okay, right, yeah. So (laughs) I just find it fascinating. Anyway, so do you know where it came from? It's crazy though, isn't it? Yeah, it yeah. From but no, but well, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like a marketing campaign for an from an insurance company is mm-hmm. where it came from, which I later found out. Mm. And I was talking to my students about this, and I was like, so we have this arbitrary number mm-hmm. that we're all aspiring towards mm-hmm. that we see as representing as healthy. Yeah. But this came from an insurance company who wanted to categorise what they thought was healthy. Yeah. It wasn't based on any scientific or medical rationality whatsoever, and this has taken over the world for all of us walking around the block enough yeah. to like hit our 10k before yeah. we can go to sleep and feel like we've done our job for the yeah. day like on a health level so my partner's best friend he will often if he hasn't hit his 10k walk around the block a few times before bedtime or go off and you know and try and adjust their lifestyle mm. so directly uh, from the nudges or the lack of data that they've captured on their devices yeah. um and i just find it fascinating this kind of relationship we have with our technology in that way where we have a number that we want to kind of work towards and then coming on to diet and influencer culture i did my masters on my fitness pal mm. so we're looking at kind of calorie counting and offsetting expenditure and one thing i think is fascinating about this app in particular and it's one of the biggest in the world yeah. when it comes to calorie counting is the way in which it's kind of like an input i call it an input out output of the body so we're count we're counting what we're putting in and then we're exercising out the calories so we've got this really mechanical way that we kind of understand and visualize our bodies which i think is reductive and problematic in lots of other ways i'll be talking about over the course of the podcast um in later episodes but for now i would love to get your take your expert opinion on calorie counting apps as a dietitian that'd be really useful yeah of course i mean within my practice and within the practice of most dietitians we actively discourage calorie counting okay for a number of reasons i mean the first being it's incredibly inaccurate so you're probably looking at a 20 percent leeway either way in terms of accuracy both from food labels because they have a 10 percent leeway and then in terms of like well, what's left on your plate and how much have you actually consumed and all there's so many things that affect the accuracy of these kinds of things and mm. you know we see patients in clinic who were like oh i've got five more calories what can i eat for five calories five and it's like how do you eat five calories nothing nothing some letters okay. um so it's very very difficult to to help people to understand that and and these you know are very much encouraged and people are encouraged to, to use the calorie tracking apps and look at their macros and all of these kinds of things so it's difficult to fight against that message the other thing to say is for most women my fitness pal will allocate you 1200 calories a day which is the nutritional requirements of a 12 year old and it's not enough for an adult woman and we have to break down some of this these things that we accept and 
learn again to listen to our bodies and to respond to our varying energy needs day to day. This is it. It's normal to be hungrier on some days and less hungry on other days. It's normal well, if also, you've exercised twice a week As a woman, more. like what about your menstrual cycle? Yeah, exactly. like, I definitely eat more when I'm premenstrual yeah. or when I'm menstruating. Yeah. Like, that's just a given. Yeah. Like, I was and... saying to one of my patients yesterday, I'm like the hungry caterpillar when I've got my period. Oh, I'm like, there is more, no end more. to my <laughs> yeah. stomach. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. and I think this is it. You And, and I, the problem with influencer culture from my perspective is that it's so prescriptive and rigid mm-hmm. and it's like, do this this, all these things and you've got like a tick box exercise and it's like put this yeah. in and exercise that out da, 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 and it just doesn't take into consideration stress trauma no. grief under eating overeating exactly. over exercising yeah you know an injury yeah. you know all of these unquantifiable things yeah. just don't come into it as a conversation and it's reductive totally um and but also it has a very direct harmful impact 100%. on our health mentally yeah. as well as well For as physically sure. and i think one of the things that the input output narrative really misses is the fact that we burn more calories just sleeping than we do in the average workout you know our body requires energy all the time breathing is energy your brain uses 20 percent of your body's energy all the time and it doesn't do it it's not moving anywhere so we have to understand that actually our bodies require a significant amount of energy all the time just to keep our heart beating and our lungs breathing and the the, keeping us alive so when we say oh well i've eaten this donut and i have to burn it off and these are the exact number of calories that i have to burn off in order burn out what you put in missing the whole point about how your body actually works right we need fuel at all times irrespective of whether we've moved or not your body still needs to eat and you still need to you deserve to eat whether you've exercised or not but this kind of reductive tracking etc makes people believe well i haven't earned that today this is it it's the it's a moral earn it's like i've earned it or i've been good yesterday so i can be bad today and have you know a takeaway or something exactly and And it's cheat days and blah blah cheat days yeah i did write a book chapter on cheat days that but it is fascinating because it's this moral thing that it just makes us serves to make us feel bad about ourselves totally. and that's what i can't stand is yeah, the judgment absolutely. um okay we're nearly done i would love you to share a top tip for how to manage the noise from influencers and social media with managing your health what would be your kind of key takeaway yeah um, i you know you. it is difficult and i think the most important thing is to try and stop the noise try and cut down on how much information you're consuming about what you should and shouldn't eat and what you should and shouldn't be doing with your body it's your body try and reduce that noise and try to think about what you need and what you want to eat and what's important and and culturally relevant to you and all these kinds of things Mm. and I think we often miss that so trying to reduce the noise is definitely a big one and these things come in everywhere now right we see there's some some of the biggest podcasts in the world will have very you know one medical person one week saying one thing and the next person saying something completely different the next week and this it makes people either go well nobody knows what to do so I'm going to ignore everything or it makes people go oh this week I'm supposed to be eating this and this week I'm supposed to be eating this and actually if we can just reduce that noise and that level of input through good social media hygiene so unfollowing you know uh, muting whatever it might be that helps you to manage that if you see a newspaper article about food, just skip over it. You don't have to do that. Stop Googling stuff about food and what yeah, you shouldn't, shouldn't be eating. And really importantly, if you're struggling, get advice, get support from a dietitian or from a therapist who can support you with your relationship with food because it's it's not normal to be yeah. worried and anxious about it. And the kind of messages that we see about it from social media and from other inputs are not 
designed for you as an individual and you and you maybe need some individual advice to help you let go of some of those rules. Fantastic. That's so helpful. I've got one top tip, which is to keep an eye out for qualifications. Yeah, nice. Because if an influencer has the qualifications, they will definitely share it. Mm-hmm, and so if mm-hmm. you're a bit unsure about what they're saying or what their message is, look for the qualifications that they've got on their bio. I think that's yeah, one of the key things because if they've got it, it'll be there and it'll yeah. be visible. Yeah. If you can't see anything, they might not have it. So I yeah. think it's just something to keep in mind. And I should say in my space, if someone's calling themselves a registered dietitian, mm. it means that they've done a three-year degree in nutrition and then gone on to learn how to apply that to medicine. There are registered nutritionists who have a degree in nutrition and they are also reliable people most of the time. And then there are other people in the nutrition space who don't have a formal degree in nutrition. And, and nutrition is a complicated area. And the people who don't have a degree in nutrition include doctors, other other people, other medical people. So just yeah. being aware of that and just kind of have your BDI on who you should be listening to because it is, it is a difficult space to navigate. Yeah, fantastic. Sophie, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Digital Health Diagnosed, your dose of tech well-being. We're here every episode to give you guidance on how to have healthy tech boundaries and to live well with technology. Please follow us and find us across all the usual streaming platforms. See you next time. 